Hello and welcome to the Nightcap Podcast. I'm John Sherburn and today, folks, if you have yet to check your clocks, is a special day. A day that comes once a year, a day of fun, fright, tricks, treats, games, and most importantly, a little fear. I'm talking about, of course, Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day, if you're one of those, like, if you're one of those classic Catholics in, like, the 1400s when they try to do that, I mean... This is a big day, folks. I mean, this is... I'm excited. I don't know if you're excited, but I'm excited. This is a day of horror, a day of getting blackout drunk, a day of, if you're a kid, getting blackout candy wasted. This is a fun time. And so as a result, I'm doing a special episode in Nightcap. If you notice, this is being posted on Friday night, not not on Monday like usual. Don't worry, we still have a Monday episode, and if you remember, Monday is right around a very important time for the show, so we're going to have a very special episode on Monday, but I thought I'd give a little something special here for, for Halloween. I would be remiss if I didn't give you something special for Halloween, and if you've been a fan of the show for a while, you have heard similar style of episode as I'm doing today. You have heard Valentine's Day, perhaps, and if you've heard Valentine's Day, you know that I'm capable sometimes of doing an off-the-cuff show. A, no predetermined, no script, just mew me, my microphone, and a little holiday magic. So for, I think, only the second time ever, we're going to have a holiday episode. And this holiday episode is going to be pretty fucking fantastic. I'm going to talk about horror as a genre. I'm going to talk about what creates horror. I'm going to talk about good horror and bad horror. I'm going to read some horror short, little thangy mabobs. I'm going to talk about... Some discussions, my opinions, got a little article to dissect quick. We got a jam-packed night for you guys. So, I know, I know, what you're thinking, you're thinking, John, you're not recording this on Halloween, because it's, there's no way, and you're right, there is no way. I'm recording this just a few days before, though, don't worry, I'm in the spirit, it's dark out, I'm about to turn on a horror movie after this, scare myself to death, pee a little bit, and go to bed. But before that, we got some work to do, folks. We got to learn about the best part, the best part of Halloween. And that's fear. Before we get into the show, I want to tell you guys how you can get a hold of me. You can get a hold of me on my Instagram at Jonathan Sherburn. Mostly just good, good pictures of my beautiful body and skin and mind and heart and face. There's also some, 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 some nightcap stuff on there. You're going to see some, I don't know, inklings of maybe you're, oh, there's a new episode coming out. Oh, here's the thing. I post some videos and photos that relate to the show that are kind of fun, kind of funny. Um, so you can have that to look forward to. If you want to go onto my website, you can go on to jonathansherburn.com. You can go into podcast under Nightcap. You can hit the show notes, and there you will find all sorts of behind-the-scenes, blog. Maybe you'll even find some of my actual like notes I wrote out for episodes. <laughs> Not for this one, because this one's off the cuff. But yeah, so you're going to see some extra content on there if you'd like to see it. But I won't push. I won't pressure. And with that... I think today's it's a good enough time to start, as any, today's episode. So, are, are you ready, folks? Because I'm ready. Jeez, oh, what is there to say, folks? Excited. Let's get into some definitions because today we're going to be talking about not Halloween. Don't worry, we're not talking about Halloween. We already talked about fall traditions. We talked about all that. Today we're going to be talking about horror. 
We're going to talk about fear. We're going to be talking about horror as a genre, horror and entertainment, what makes up horror, what makes things scary. And before we can do that, we're going to get into the basics. So what is horror, everybody? What is truly the concepts of horror in media? Well, horror as a word is described as being an intense feeling of fear, shock, or disgust. There's an informal use as well, meaning a bad or mischievous person, especially a child. Kind of a, a horror of a human being, but we're not going to talk about that. That is a fair definition. It's pretty general for our uses, but horror is an emotion. It is a... I, don't, I almost think of it as a, a descriptive emotion. I wouldn't describe as often feeling horror. I would describe horror as, as something someone looks like. You have a look of horror on your face. You, you look horrified. Now... Some things can be horrifying, but I think that a better descriptor of that feeling is fear. You're feeling fear, and it's looking like horrified. You have a face of horror on. And I think it's an important distinction to make. So, just to kind of clarify, horror is simple. Horror is simply a state of being scared. And so, when you look at horror in film, look at horror in books, you are looking at the personified genre that is horror. The horror is attempt. What horror is attempting to do is scare you. Horror is attempting to instill fears that go beyond your rational mind in its books, in its movies, and they do this in different ways. Sometimes it is simple shock factor, right? You have the shock and disgust, and that is to me a different thing. You also like you have shock and disgust, which the concept behind that is to try to is to freak you out really is, is to make you feel unsettled uncomfortable it's maybe showing you stuff you've never seen before so it might be the first time you know what it looks like to have a person's skin get flayed off their body right or if you're talking about like the movie Suspiria what it looks like to have your bones all break that is one type of horror there's also the existential horror which is making you question more that's uh, interacting with your brain that's making you think about how things could be, how maybe things are in the real world that you're not thinking about. It's just supposed to scare your brain into not into being paranoid. So that's kind of the paranoia area of fear. And then there's the base instinct fear. And this all interacts with our base instincts, but there are movies specifically tailored and monsters specifically tailored to our baser instincts as humans, stuff we've felt for a while. And this is gonna wear and this is where I'm gonna get into why we are the way we are, why horror is effective. If you think back to the beginnings of mankind, when we were just kind of coming past being an animal species, but not quite where we are today in terms of our infrastructure, there was a period of time, a couple, couple tens of thousands of years, where we were interacting with the animal world as a part of it, and yet not benefiting from some of those not benefiting from some of the, the positives to the animal kingdom, right? We didn't have the fur. We didn't have the large deposits of fat every year. We didn't have the superior bodies for killing or for hiding. We we're kind of in the middle. We we're a mid-level predator that focused mostly on gathering. And the other big weapon we had was our brains. And so since our brains were bigger and more complex, not bigger per se in terms of size, but since we had more intricate brains we were allowed to think more. And so we came up to the top because we, what we were lacking as a weapon or as an ability to hide, we gained in our ability to think and understand and use our social packs to our advantage. 
But this also gave us the opportunity to feel fear. We understood, and therefore we had the ability to be afraid. And that is, I think, a huge aspect of fear. The concept of understanding something. Now, there is fear of the unknown. And that's our most basic fear, because before all these other fears can come up, we have that fear of things we don't understand. The fear of the dark. The fear of the future. The fear of whatever's outside of our vision or our grasp. But then you get into the known fears, right? Fears like water or fire. Fears of being alone. Fears of predators. And that is where monsters come into it. And I'm just going to do a quick plug. My most popular episode of Nightcap is the monsters. If you haven't listened to it, it is a good time of year to listen to it. It's pretty much my take on monsters in culture. And I'm not going to talk a whole bunch about monsters today. Not any more than I have to. But I just think that's a good thing to, to kind of plug if you're interested in the monster aspect of the horror conversation. Now that we've gotten into that, I want to say there, I want to break down what goes into horror. And there are three main things that go into horror. I think there are three necessary items of a horror movie. If you don't have all three, you got a problem. The first is a monster. And this monster can be the swamp thing. This monster can be a vampire. This monster could be, though, a concept. It could be a race of aliens. It could be humanity itself. It could be a serial killer. A monster is not necessarily an a-human thing. A monster is just a big bad guy that operates on fear or a big bad guy that creates and instills fear in the characters that the audience is supposed to think about, the audience is supposed to connect with. And that is necessary. That's the first building block. The second building block is, as I've said, fear. It needs to have a scary concept. It needs to be rooted in one of our baser instincts, or at the very least, our baser instincts have to show up throughout the movie, whether that's getting the lights turned off, or fire, or drowning, or something. Usually these movies have, in terms of the murders, some of those baser concepts of fear trickled up in them. Now, there is one aspect of horror that is, I will maintain, the most important, easily the most important aspect. If you don't have this done well, you can't have a horror movie. That is isolation. Horror as a genre only exists when there is isolation. You have to have an aspect and a level of aloneness. Because if you think about it, most of these monsters, whether they exist or not, are only effective because they've cut off the main characters from the rest of the world. I was just talking about how, as cave people, as early man, we were reliant on social structures. That's all we really had. And so as a result, what is the best way to make an individual scared? Take away the one thing that happens. The same as taking away a lion's claws and teeth. You take away our social structures, it unravels very quickly. And if you, if you look at almost any horror, that's the case. Whether it's kids stuck inside a house, whether it's a, uh, a school on a trip in the woods caught off by themselves, whether it's the city of Japan without anyone to help them, Take a group of people and isolate them. And the more you isolate them, the better. Because the second there's light at the end of the tunnel, the army's on the way, whatever, it's not scary. The second there's help that's able to help, it's not scary. And I think that's important because it doesn't have to be a four people, right? You could have six billion people. You could have the entire planet be isolated. If it's a big enough monster, if it's a big enough bad guy, we don't need... It doesn't need to be a small group. It just needs to have no external help. Cut them off from the rest of the world. They are stuck to their own devices, no matter how much more devices they need to succeed. 
And then a good movie, usually they, they come out on top, or at least one of them does. In some capacity, there's a victory. Give them what they want, not how they wanted it. Well, that's the three building blocks to horror. Now, let's talk for a moment before I get into our first little activity of the day. I want to talk for a moment about the concepts of horror in film. So, I've mentioned there's kind of three big genres of horror. And there's kind of... These are present in all sorts of things. Like, they have, there's crossover. But, you got monster movies, you got slasher movies, and you got terror movies. When you talk about monster movies, I'm talking about traditional monsters. We're talking vampires, mummies, you know, werewolves, zombies, whatever. You're talking... Something that feels reminiscent of a human, something we can connect with, that isn't a human, wreaking havoc because it is stronger than us, right? And that, like, why does that exist? Right? Let's think about it for a second. That is one of the, I think that's the oldest genre, right? That's that, you know, fuck that. That is the oldest genre. Where does it come from? Most of these monsters are either animalistic or foreign in terms of they're like some sort of alien concept. But these stem from, in my opinion, the beginning of our civilization. It started as lion, right? There's a big group of lions that were killing humans. And the little monkeys were like, the big lions are scary. And then they start telling stories about the lions. Start telling stories about when the lion, right, trapped this guy in a cave for two days, but he killed the lion. And they tell the story. And as humans have progressed, so of those stories, almost every culture has monster stories, whether it's the mythologies of the Egyptians or the Greeks or the Chinese, whether it's the stories of the Native Americans, whether it's our stories, there's always monsters. There's devils and demons, and usually they're based off of human things. And those were the first stories, because those can come from nature. You can have, a you know, for an example, a great real-life story is this wolf, the wolf of Soissons, which was outside of Paris, and that wolf killed, I think, six people and put like 12 to 18 more in a hospital. It's a great example of a large, scary, murderous, man-eating wolf that doesn't happen a lot by himself, right? Maybe at a rabies, there's no way to really know, but it's this large, man-eating wolf terrorizing things. I mean, that's a great monster movie right there, and it's a real-life example. Then we get into slasher movies, and slashers stem more from the human psyche. Slashers come from the monsters among us, as opposed to the monsters of the ether, of the external. These are the monsters our societies have accepted. And again, think about that, right? The reason, if you think about society and monster movies, it's something from outside of the society hurting the society. Slasher movies, it's something from inside the society hurting the society. So, for example, a slasher movie could be the, you know, Jasons and Freddy Kruegers of the world, those are human beings hurting other human beings. Slasher movies generally are. They're uh, an individual who's strong, sometimes a regular person, sometimes they're imbued with a magical power or something of the like. But it is a person defying the odds, using their brain to hurt the social pack. And again, that is a tale as old as time, right? It's as old as everything from Judas to, uh, to you know, whatever, the, the skinwalkers, right? You have these ideas of something among us is hurting us actively. And that is, in my opinion, even sometimes more scary. Because we can't help it if there's an external fear. An internal fear means we've grown it. Someone's hurt it. Someone's caused it to exist the way it has. And that's even scarier because it means it's our fault. Lastly, we have the terror genre. 
And that's the newest genre. Terror is a very interesting beast because there's not a lot in it. I always say if monsters come outside of the society, slashers come from within the society, terror takes away the society completely in terms of fear. The fear doesn't stem from within the society or outside the society. The fear stems from within yourself. To me, the terror genre is hallmarked for two or three things. It is a slow building unease throughout the movie. A slow building sketchiness, I guess you'd say, where you don't feel comfortable watching it. You want to not see it. And eventually it goes to a head and you're just fully freaked out. And I would say that is one of the main aspects of the terror genre. Besides that, I'll talk about the terror genre as, well, takes you it's psychological right it's a psychological horror genre it 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 makes you question your placement it's one of those it's that style that makes you say is this happening in real life could this happen in real life and a lot of terror does uh i if you look at like midsummer that's it kind of in the terror genre where it's like this could all happen this isn't a monster this isn't even i mean in in terms of midsummer it's like a group of people it's a society that's like allowed to exist that just slowly becomes crazier and crazier and eventually takes advantage and takes the best of a lot of the main characters. It's not all of the main characters. That's a good terror, right? Because it's just slowly, you're like, what the hell's happening? What the hell's happening? What the hell's... And then you realize that this is actually happening and it makes you kind of leave feeling dirty. And I think terror is the best for that reason. The other stuff's kind of overdone. It's like the hero's journey kind of mentality, person versus person, person versus society, Terror is more that postmodern, right? Person versus self or person versus the concepts of reality. And that stuff can be a lot scarier. And so I think terror is my favorite. And, and let's take a break for a second, folks. Okay. We're getting, we're getting readjusted here. We're getting comfortable. Scoochies. Doing a little scoochie. I'm sitting. Guys, I'm sitting. I've been standing up. You know what? I'm going to give you guys a little treat. Before I get into our reading, I'm going to tell you guys, I have a couple of short stories I'm going to be reading throughout the episode. Each story is a little paragraph, so it's going to give you a little feeling of unease. This first one is called This New Old House. We bought an old house, my boyfriend and I. He's in charge of the new construction, converting the kitchen into the master bedroom, for instance, while I'm on wallpaper removal duty. The previous owner papered every wall and ceiling. Removing it is brutal, but oddly satisfying. It's this old, fraying yellow, and I'm excited to get rid of it. The best feeling is getting a long peel. It's similar to your skin when you're peeling a sunburn. I don't know about you, but I kind of make a game of peeling on the hunt for the longest piece before it rips. Under a corner section of paper in every room is a person's name and a date. <laughs> Curiosity got the best of me one night... And I googled one of the names and discovered the person was actually a missing person. The missing date matched the date under the wallpaper. The next day I made a list of all the names and dates, and sure enough, each one was for a missing person with dates to match. We notified the police, who naturally sent out the crime scene analysis team. I overheard one text say, Yep, it's human. Human? What's human? Ma'am, where is the material removed from the walls already? This isn't wallpaper you are removing. It's skin, if you didn't get that. 
that's one of those terror genres, right? That's, there's no external monster. There's almost a societal monster because there is a guy that did that, right? There's a person that killed and strung up the skin of its victims, but that's not the focus here. The monster is within yourself, right? I was just tearing human skin off a wall and kind of liking it. And that is unsettling. It gets (laughs) under your skin. (laughs) Jesus. That was a real cough, folks. So with that, I'm going to get into just a little reading, just a quick, don't worry, just a quick reading. This reading comes from the book Save the Cat by the late Blake Snyder. He was a screenwriter who'd made quite a few famous movies, and this book is kind of on how to make a surefire pitch idea, how to make a surefire script. If you follow this and have an inkling of creative knowledge, supposedly you can make something that would ideally get a Hollywood budget, if you know the right people. And I'm going to read very quickly from one of the, he says there's, what, seven genres? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven... Eight, nine, ten. He says there's ten genres you can put almost every single movie in. I don't know if I agree completely with him, but most movies can fit into one of the genres he's provided. They're not. It's not all like sci-fi and romance. It's more like the fool triumphant and institutionalized and superhero film, which isn't always Superman or Batman. Sometimes it's Gladiator or Dracula. Weird Dracula, right? But we're not going to talk about any of those. We're going to be talking about his genre, the monster in the house. And I'm just going to read this quick page as to what he thinks makes a good horror movie. Monster in the house. What do Jaws, the Exorcist and Alien have in common? They're examples of the genre I call the monster in the house. This genre has a long track record and was probably the first tale man ever told. It has two parts, a monster and a house. When you add people into that house desperate to kill the monster, you've got a movie type so primal that it translates to everyone everywhere. It's the type of movie I like to say you can pitch to a caveman. And it's not about being dumb, it's about being primal. And everyone understands the simple primal commandments. Don't get eaten. That's why this genre is responsible for so many worldwide hits and franchises. You probably run most of these films without the soundtrack and still get it. I'm talking everything from Jurassic Park to The Nightmare on Elm Street to Friday the 13th and Scream to Tremors and its sequels. And every haunted house and ghost story ever told are great examples of this genre. Even films without supernatural elements such as Fatal Attraction fall into this category. But it's clear from movies such as Arachnophobia, Lake Placid, and Deep Blue Sea that if you don't know the rules of the monster in the house, you fail. The rules are very simple. The house must be confined space, a beach town, a spaceship, a futuristic Disneyland with dinosaurs, a family unit. There must be sin committed, usually greed, a lot of times monetary greed or primal greed, that prompts the creation of a supernatural monster that comes like an avenging angel to kill those who have committed that sin and spare those who realize what that sin is. The rest run and hide. Putting a new twist on both the monster, the monster's powers, and the way we say boo is the job of the screenwriter, the screen, <laughs> the screenwriter, who wants to add the illustrious limb of this family tree of movies. Add to the illustrious limb of this family tree of movies. We can see bad examples of this category in Arachnophobia, the film starring Jeff Daniels and John Goodman. It's a bad monster, a small spider, and it's not that scary either. You step on it and it dies. Also, no house. At any given moment, the residents of Arachnophobia can say, check please, and be on the next Greyhound out of town. 
So where's the tension there? Where is the tension there? Because the filmmakers behind Arachnophobia violated the rules of the monster in the house, they wound up with a min-mat, a mismatch. Is it a comedy? A drama? Are we supposed to be scared scared or laughing scared? I could write a whole book on the rules of Monster in the House, but you don't need to have a Monster in the House film festival in your own home. But you don't need me to have a Monster in the House film festival in your own home and discover these nuances for yourself. So that is the monster in the house as a genre. And I agree with most of what he's saying. The one thing I want to note that I disagree with is the concept that the monster has some sin atonement, right? There's people doing something wrong and the monster there to fix it. I disagree. Sometimes that's the case. There's kids breaking into an old war veteran's house and they find that that war veteran isn't as nice as he seems. Or, um, you know, a group of people go into a haunted house to see if they can find something. Or using a Ouija board. I mean, that's one... That is a concept that is very well done. But there's a lot of monsters that were stemming from something other than their victims making a mistake. Sometimes the victims are victims of circumstance. Other times, you know, right? Like they moved into the house and they moved into the house and the serial killer comes back because he wants to avenge the death of his parents or something like that. That'll happen. Now, you could argue that it's that somewhere, someone has made a mistake and that monster exists because of their mistake. And that I agree with most of the time. There are still examples, though, of no one really being at fault. Sometimes there's just a big bad guy, a big bad vampire in a castle, or there's, you know, a monster that's a mistake of chance. But most of the time you have your Godzillas who are results of human error, be it from the people in the house or people that are long away from the house or sometimes even long dead. At the end of the day, those kind of movies tend to be monster-esque movies where it's the concept of humanity. Society has created this monster, and this monster is now going to take its own chunk out of society. And so sometimes the victims get kind of lumped together, unfortunately, with the larger whole. But that's just the human race for you, folks. That's just what we're all... That's kind of the gig if you're going to be a human. Now, I've talked a lot about film. I want to talk for a second about literature, which has a far longer history only due to the fact that literature has a far longer history than film. So just quickly here, I want to talk about different styles of horror. There's old school horror. Like I said, horror has been around forever. So you have all sorts of monsters, right? I'm thinking of older ones, everything from Dracula and the mummy and Frankenstein. You can also think though of monsters like Medusa or Books on the horrors of war. Is that not, is that not horror, right? If you have a, a horrifying recount of all sorts of wars, there are, especially back in the day, we used to fight bloody wars, take no prisoners wars, Vikings raping and murdering a whole town of people just because. And so that is horror in itself. Horror doesn't have to be anything. That's a slasher movie. Instead of it being a monster, it's a group, though. It's a society of people hurting other people. Sometimes that can even get into terror. So you have old school stuff. And, and I like to talk about Edgar Allan Poe here. Edgar Allan Poe was my first foray into horror. When I was in middle school, I read pretty much everything from Cask of Amontillado to The Pit and the Pendulum to The Telltale Heart. And that is one of the things I go to the most because that was the first short story I read of his. It's a simple story. It starts with an unreliable narrator who's gone crazy and decided he needs to take out the heart of this old man who has this evil eye, this eye that's glaring and leering upon him all the time. And so he kills the man 
and buries him under the floorboards. When the cops come, he's convinced he's convinced he's convinced that the cops have no idea the person's under the floorboard until he starts to hear the heart beating louder and louder and louder until he can't take it anymore. And this in two ways is a classic story, right? The first way is that he has taken a man with most likely cataracts in his eyes and turned him into this evil devil monster, most likely due to the fact that he has some things inside himself he doesn't like, and so he sees this eye as this evil eye looking into his soul. Secondarily, once he kills the man, he starts hearing the heartbeat. Now, the heart's not really beating, but he can hear it, and he knows he's messed up. He knows he's made the wrong decision, and his sense of humanity comes back to him. And that's, I think, a big thing with horror. There's two types of people in horror movies. There are those who are heartless sociopathic entities. They're usually the monster, or they're helping the monster, and life does not go well for them. At some point, they lose, they taste defeat, at the hands of the other group, the group that is the, 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 the human beings that have sort of a heart. Sometimes it's people like the main character of the Telltale Heart, who can't take the heat. If he was maybe better at being a murderer, right? He wouldn't have been caught, but he couldn't take it because he was just another guy. And that's another concept. Usually they're the victims, but sometimes they're the bad guys themselves. Going past that, there's art authors like Stephen King, who I love to talk about. He's written everything from It, The Shining, um, Mr. Mercedes, The Green Mile, Thinner, Pet Cemetery, Misery, the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. I want to talk about the jaunt. I almost read the jaunt for today's episode, but it takes me 45 minutes, 30 minutes probably to read the jaunt, so I won't. The jaunt's great, though. It's a story about a family that's going to travel through space into, literally space, into Mars. And he's, and the main character is telling his family about how the jaunt works, the history of the jaunt. So he, the, most of the story is him going through how the guy invented it. It's very technical, right? How he invents it how he tests it in different ways, and he's slowly trying to kind of calm them down before they go on their first jaunt. And he gets to the point where he explains what actually happened. He explains that as much as the physical body can jump through time, the consciousness cannot. The consciousness is not physical. It's not describable. So what happens to this consciousness when your body jumps through space? We don't know. Well, they found out, though, in this book. They found out that Again, you have to turn off the people's brains. You have to put them to sleep. Because if they don't go to sleep, time passes. A lot of time. And so he tells his family this, and they're all promptly put under. When he wakes up on the other side of the jaunt, he realizes something is very wrong. He realizes his son held his breath and didn't take the gas that knocked everyone out. And he realized this because his son was excited. He wanted to experience whatever his father was talking about. He wanted to experience that thing that most people had never experienced. And when the father turned to the right, as he heard the screams of everyone around him, he saw the body of a 12-year-old boy. But the eyes, the hair, the skin of a man who'd aged millions of years. The son cackled. He was screaming and laughing and yelling and cackling. It's longer than you think. It's longer than you think. It's longer than you think. And he died. And it really stuck with me. That concept that if you fuck up, right, and you don't take that gas, it's 
eternity of whiteness. You've lived a million lifetimes with nothing but the whiteness around you. With nothing but what's in your head. Your brain's usually contented because you give it things to play with. You go to sleep. You can look at things. You have physical stimuli. But when you take away all of the stimuli, every single piece of the stimuli, and yet you don't die, your brain is left to wander, and it quickly turns on you. And once it's turned on you, you just sit in that for as long as it takes. And that truly, in my mind, is scarier <laughs> than anything else. There's also a lot of short story horror, and I think that's very fun. Stories like Red Moon, wherein uh, it was an, a commentary on 9-11, where, where people turned into werewolves on flights all across America. And I think that's a great example of isolation, right? You have a bunch of strangers who don't know how to work together on planes, which means they're, they're too small to even really do any good on. You can't really plan anything or do anything. You're on a small airplane with a wild animal, this monster that is the werewolf. So this, at a surface level, is a monster story, but also a terror story because it's talking about not really werewolves, but terrorists, right? It's talking about what happened on 9-11. And so it kind of crosses two genres. On a primal first level, it is a monster movie or a monster short story. But on a deeper level, the commentary is more of a terrifying concept. So that's just a couple words on literature, horror literature. I felt like I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. But let's get into some good questions. I have some questions, some comments, some things I want to talk about before I get wrapping up here. I might be cutting things out or, or rearranging things or re-recording things, but I want to talk first about good horror versus bad horror. And this is huge, right? Horror is famously known for having a large selection of horrible movies. I'd say sci-fi and horror are the two genres with the most quote-unquote bad movies, B-movies, however you want to call them. I think the reason is twofold. First off is production value. When it comes to sci-fi, it's mostly the concept of we're trying, well, with both genres, you're trying to create things that don't exist, A, right? It's not like you're, you're, you can't, you're, you're using something that doesn't actually exist for the most part. But on a deeper level, you're also inventing things that are used to being in the human imagination. You're inventing other races of people and space and shit like that and sci-fi. But in horror, you're inventing fears. And a lot of these fears translate best in your own mind. That's the big thing about fears. It's very personal, intangible. Fear only exists when the lights are off and you're by yourself. It doesn't exist in the shining daylight in a public park, for the most part. And so it's hard to do. Sometimes it's hard to visualize, and sometimes it doesn't age well. And so you have a lot of bad horror. I think there's four or five things that can make bad horror. First off, it's fucking up one of the base three concepts that I talked about earlier. If you fuck up the concept of fear, right, what's actually... If you misread what's scaring people, for example, arachnophobia. That's what Blake Snyder talked about. In arachnophobia, you have spiders. Cool, people are afraid of spiders. But they're not afraid of one little spider. They're afraid of big spiders, the queen spider, or millions of spiders in the walls. That's scary. So if you fuck up the fear itself, right? It's like putting a, it's like putting a swamp monster horror in a kiddie pool. You could also mess up the monster. You can make the swamp monster made of uh, f uh, leaves in a yard, and that might not be as scary. Aside from maybe the opening when the monster eats a little kid who jumps into the leaves, but if you use the wrong monster, it's a problem. The monster has to encapsulate something deeper. And I think that's huge. I'm going to talk about that later. But I think that a good monster is always based in humanity. You can always blame humanity for the first part. There has to be someone else involved. There has to be a human responsible 
in some capacity, 99% of the time. There are some exceptions, but generally, a human has to be responsible in some capacity for the monster. But secondly, people have to be seen in the monster, whether it's something like a vampire who literally is still kind of a human, looks like a human, comes from a human, or a race of aliens that are doing the same thing we're doing to the indigenous population, right? You need to have a human trait in the monster. So it's not just some, yeah, I guess, right? If, if there's no human trait, it's kind of like, yeah, I fucking guess. This, anything could happen. You know, the houses could decide that they're alive randomly one day and turn into these big penises and crush us all. Like, ah, if we're throwing the rules out the window... What is there to land on? So it has to be some sort of grounding factor. And lastly, it has to be isolated. I think that's the biggest one. If you give them an out, it very quickly deflates. Because then everyone's saying, just go, just don't go the other way. And that's huge with bad horror movies. With bad horror movies, it's always like, why are you splitting up? Or why don't you just leave? Or, right, like, oh, the car's trying to get in the car and go. Usually... Or it goes against this by then, oh no, the car keys are gone, or the car is broken. And in slash movies, that's always the case. The second that the heroes think of something, so does the villain, and the villain's already clipped the tires, or they've already cut off the electricity for the house or something. And that's one of those, again, the chessboard that exists in slash movies, of each group being a human and working against the other human to try to outsmart them. What is better than that is putting them in an inescapable situation. Saw does this, right? As well as, you know, movies where there's a haunting, right? But you can't get out. There's not a clear path. It's just the world. You're put into this world and said, here you are. Lighthouse is freaky for that reason. The movie The Lighthouse is a terror movie because you're literally on, a, you're on an island with one other guy in a lighthouse. You can't leave. There is no boat coming for what is supposed to be a few days. And then a storm hits as well. There's no way out. It's just you, this other fucking weird guy, the storm, and whatever happens. There's no way out. The best horror is that. The witch is the same way, not to keep you know jacking off Eggers, but the witch is the same way. They're, they can't go into town. They can't get out. They are living in a house in the backwoods of colonial America. You are fucked if some if, if witches and devils decide they want to fuck with you, it is over. Over. It is capital O, V-E-R, over, I'm sorry. That's another concept to me of the good versus bad horror. And it really stems down to sometimes production value and time. On the one end, production value is important. If you're trying to do something big and you can't do it, it's bad, right? Especially, you know, if, if you're trying to illustrate a concept that you can't do justice, it can be problematic. That's why some people say stuff like Dune shouldn't have been done when it was done. If you look at really old movies where it's just, you know, you can't, the interiors look cheesy or the monster look, the big one is the monster looks cheesy, right? The the werewolf looks bad. The vampire looks bad. And that's a problem. The second problem is datedness. My dad has movies that scared the shit out of him as kids that I laugh at because as tech gets better, cameras get better, props and costumes get better. Some stuff is glaringly cheesy where you're so a lot of times space movies from the fifties suck. Most of them, I think all of them suck because they're trying to tackle space, and they can't do a good space. They can't do a good alien planet, maybe. And so as a result, you have a bad film. And so that's why good and bad horror are very temperamental, and horror has so much bad stuff, because there's no grounding. Generally, there's some concept that takes some production value, and if you fuck that up, the whole thing's fucked. Now, there's also writing, which is a whole different beast. You have to have good writers and good actors. A lot of 80s slashers have funnily bad actors or... Bad writing, and as a result, they're not aging well. 
but writing's important. And I always say writing's the most important. If you have a good script and a good director and good actors, the rest can fall into place. Or at least the movie can have its a spot in the annals of history. But if you have bad writing or bad actors, it doesn't matter how good the production is. It's just, it's hard to make it a top-level film. All right, it is time for another story, I think, really quick. For a second. See, there's this one I found that was horrible. It's called Guardians. And I'll start here. He awoke to the huge insect-like creatures looming over his bed and screamed his lungs out. They hastily left the room and he stayed up all night shaking and wondering if he'd been dreaming, but the next morning there was a tap on the door. He gathered his courage and opened to see one of those same huge insect bug creatures staring at him. And in front of the door there was a plate full of fried breakfast on the floor. And then the bug retreated to a safe distance. He was bewildered, but he accepted the gift. He hadn't eaten in almost a day. The creatures chittered excitedly, and every day for weeks he was fed fatty breakfasts, lunch, and dinners. And at first he was worried that those same bugs were fattening him up. But after a particularly greasy breakfast left him clutching his chest from heartburn, they were replaced with fresh fruit. As well as cooking, they poured him hot, steamy baths, tucked him in at night when he went to bed, it felt bizarre. One night he woke to gunshots and screaming. He raced downstairs to find a decapitated burglar being devoured by the insects, and he was sickened, but disposed of the remains as best he could. He knew they'd been protecting him. One morning, though, the creatures wouldn't let him leave his room. He lay down, confused but trusting, as they ushered him back into bed. Whatever their motives, they weren't going to hurt him. They would have already. But hours later, a burning pain spread through his body, and it felt like his stomach was filled with razor wire. The insects chittered excitedly as he spasmed and moaned, and it was only when he felt a terrible squirming feeling beneath his skin that he realized the insects hadn't been protecting him. They'd been protecting their young. It's about insects. Already a terrifying monster. We don't like insects. They carry disease and pestilence. They're freaky. They look nothing like us. They don't act like us. They don't have faces like us. We can't connect to them. But even more so is, fine, is, is, is the idea that you're settling into comfort with, with them. Settling into comfort with this weird new life only to realize that that comfort was misplaced. And you're dying a horrible death as insects break their way through your skin. Moving in, we're going to discuss famous monsters. We're going to discuss some of the biggest monsters and why they exist and what they mean. First, I want to talk about Vampires. Vampires are interesting thematically. They are creatures of humanity, right? They're humans that have been turned into something less than human, more than human, both. Emotionally, they're less than human. Physically, they're more than human, they're stronger than we are. The reason is because they've been robbed of one thing and given something else. They've been robbed of their empathy, right? Their hearts stop beating. Their skin stops having life in it. Their blood stops pumping. They're literally taking away their life blood, their life force from them. And so one of those things that makes them human and connected people is gone. And what is it replaced with, right? It's replaced with the need to take the lives of other people. And so it's hard to connect with human beings, right? It's hard to connect with your fellow man when you also have to kill your fellow man. This is why serial killers are sociopaths, because their fellow people are victims. They're not peers. And that's the issue with a vampire. And the sad thing that makes a vampire a good monster is that it equally, A, is a human, B, is, no, is kind of an outcast from human society. And you'll find that most monsters are outcasts from human societies, if not all. They also don't have a choice. 
they have to feed. If they don't feed, they're going to die. And anyone will notice that with human beings if, and with any animal, when you get to the point where you're going to die, you lose your sense of whatever. It doesn't matter. You'll eat your friend. You'll, you'll cut off your arm. You'll do whatever you have to to survive. And so these vampires have to feed. Good monster. Ding. All right. Another one. Let's talk about mummies. Mummies are old monsters, and I think the reason they're monsters is because they're kind of the idea of the human past. Sometimes the past we don't want to uncover, sometimes the past we shouldn't uncover. There are two tons of mummy films, the films where, you know, some new settlers or like prospectors or something break into an ancient burial ground and are met with the living dead, right? I've always found mummies kind of cliche. I think part of it's because we can't connect with them today, right? Like they're, they're this, it's a lot of, it's this ancient burial method of a long dead society. And so it's kind of hard for us to look at it in the face and be like, yeah, that's scary. It's a lot easier for us to laugh at it. Cause it's this fucking decayed dude. It's like a single zombie. It's not that scary. And there's not a lot of good mommy movies that I've ever made. The mummy is decent at best. And like, there's older movies that have to do with mummies that like, you know, didn't age super well. And so mummies are kind of a bad villain. It's a good idea. Again, it's the ideas of our past. And that's not, there's not too many monsters that do that well, where it's like they encompass like ancient humanity and our roots. And that can be scary. We don't have too many of those. There's a really good mummy story though. HP uh, Lovecraft. It's called The Outsider. I That's one of my favorite horror stories. And it's a mummy story. Um, and so I recommend everyone gives that a, a look-see daisy. I, I love that. I see it as a mummy story. It's not, I don't know if it's specifically said, but I, I, I really like that story. So please go read The Outsider. I'll link that in my show notes if you want it. <sighs> Two more. Mm, one more. Another, in the idea of, of mummies, you also have the concept of zombies. Also the living dead, but a different type of living dead. Instead of an individual superpowered being, it's a regular people that aren't even them anymore. It's like a, it's a virus that's taken over their brain or something, right? So it's the the husks of humanity without actually being human. And I think that's kind of the scary thing. I think that's the I think that's the scary part of it is that it's people. <laughs> it's your friends and your family and your neighbors and your countrymen turning against you and it's not even them as much as you're going to hesitate because it's your mom. She's not going to hesitate because it's not her. <laughs> and so mummies are like the opposite. Sorry. The mummies are like the opposite of a zombie where, where a mummy is an individual that you have no connection to a zombie is many individuals that you do. And they ironically work at humanity's biggest benefit is also their biggest downfall in that situation because the more humans there are, the more, the zombie virus is going to spread. And the more it spreads, the more powerful the concept of the zombie becomes. And so it's kind of one of those momentum snowball monsters, not a, not an abominable snowman, but a snowball of a monster that exists because of humanity's greatest achievement, our social culture. And so I think zombies, one of the best monsters for that exact reason, in terms of fear factor, there's a lot you can do with it. It's very open. Everything from, um, the rape zombies and crossed to the weird ones in the light of the living dead to, you know, world war Z to Shaun of the dead. There's funny, they're scary, but there's a lot of monsters nonetheless. And so I love zombie movies for that reason. I think zombie movies are funny. They're fun. They're scary. Train to Busan is one of my favorite zombie. It's one of my favorite horror movies. It's my favorite zombie movie. 
it just hits the genre perfectly, almost going past the genre in how good it's done. It is perfectly isolated. It's kind of scary, but it's not too scary. It's not funny, but there's like moments. The characters are cliche, but in a good way. And there's like good moments, good character development. It was a movie I expected to not like that much, but I found myself rooting for all of them. So for that reason, I love Train of Yusan. So those are some monsters, just to kind of give you guys a couple of concepts of why some of these monsters exist. But remember, if you remember nothing else about this episode, the concept that a good monster stems from the fact that it is based in humanity. And I showed you a couple examples of that. And there's, honestly, I dare you to try to find me an example of a monster that's not based in humanity. Whether it's aliens doing the same thing to us we've done to millions of other people, or whatever, usually it's a human-based thing. Even in, like, The Thing, right? The Thing is like, there's a random alien comes and just says, fuck it, I want to kill you guys. So that's kind of whatever. But what it does is it takes, it it kills human beings and then copies them and takes them over. And so there's still that level of humanity where it's like, it could be any of us. It's to quote a popular video game among us. And I think that's very interesting. That's a great example of horror. Cause you're like, can I even trust the human being sitting next to me? Again, it's a societal thing. But it's also a terror thing because you're completely isolated in your own mind. Even if you have friends and family around you, it's like, are any of you real? Or is it just me here? And that makes it scary. That was a lot, folks. We're approaching an hour. I don't want to bore you too much, so I'm going to wrap it up. And I'm going to wrap it up with a little article dissecting and discussing an article on how fear itself actually works. Fear is... As old as we are, this is a Medical News Today article talking about fear as a concept. And the first question is, why do we get scared? And I think it's interesting, right? Fear is this, it's the worst thing about us. We're, paranoia and fear and anxiety are some of humans' worst traits in terms of individuals. It's scary. It makes you not trust things that you should trust. It creates problems where there's none. And that's kind of freaky. But as at the same time, fear is the reason we're a successful species. Creatures that don't run and hide from bigger animals or dangerous situations are going to die. Most likely being removed from the gene pool before it's even given the chance to procreate. So as a result, the humans that live are the ones that are afraid. And so fear is a concept in all of us. All the trigger happy kind of sketchy scary people that don't give a shit died out because they weren't adequately afraid. And we do have to be afraid. There's a lot of stuff to be afraid of at first due to the animal kingdom, but even now due to our complex societies, fear is important, but too much fear is not. Now, fear, as I've said, itself can be a little trigger happy. It makes sense to be jumpy if you're in the woods at night and you hear what feels like an animal rustling around. It doesn't make sense to hide from your own shadow. And so, to a certain extent, we need to be in control of our fear. When you're afraid of something that's not there, like the dark in your safe locked apartment, well, that's a little far. That's not, that's not helpful, because you've got to live in that apartment. Now, sometimes, though, right, you're going to be afraid, and it's because there's actually someone in the apartment, and he's right behind you, over your shoulder, ready to kill you. So, you don't want to be not afraid enough. And that fear is good because it makes you on edge. So if there's something there, you're more ready. But you can't let that fear descend into a panic attack where you're crying every time. That's the difference. You don't, you don't, don't want to stop your fear. Just accept your fear, but don't fall into it super hard either. Now, sometimes you ask, right, well, I'm feeling afraid. What's happening? 
not the exact question they're talking about, what happens in the body. Now, there are a lot of physiological changes occurring. You thought everyone talks about the fight or flight response, and it's true. It's the release of chemicals that make you decide if you want to stay and fight your ground or run away. And that's why you start to freak out. Your breathing increases. Your heart rate increases. Your blood vessels constrict. And blood vessels around your vital organs dilate to give them oxygen so you can run. You can fight. You can punch. That's why a lot of times when you're afraid, you're better, right? Some some A woman who is 110 pounds might be able to fend off an 180-pound attacker because she's afraid. And her muscles are working the hardest they've ever worked in their lives. And her brain's working the hardest work in its life to survive. And so human beings, right, have that moment of fear is dangerous. And you've always seen that. When you back somebody into a corner, they act poorly in terms of their brain. Their bodies react very well. Someone that's afraid might be able to take... An injury they wouldn't be able to take, all right? You could cut open your Achilles and you still run across that fence without even realizing it because you're scared and you want to survive. You have to just get away from whatever it is that's hurting you. Muscles become tighter, even at the base of each of your hair. That's called goosebumps. Doesn't do a lot for our appearance, but for certain animals, it actually makes us seem larger and more formidable. That's why goosebumps exist. We used to have more hair, so right... If we had goosebumps all over our body, it would give us this bigger appearance. To some animals, not to other other humans, we've kind of grown past it, but yet goosebumps remain. Interesting concept. Now, you might ask why our brains respond this way. It starts in the amygdala. The amygdala is an almond-shaped bundle of neurons that are part of our limbic a part of our limbic system, and they process emotions, including fear. So. The amygdala is able to trigger acti- that it, it 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 lets us know that we're feeling emotions, lets us know we're feeling feel fear, and it triggers the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus activates the pituitary gland, and that is where our nervous system meets our hormone system, our endocrine system. And our pituitary gland secretes a hormone into the blood that makes our nervous system fight or flight response go crazy, and it gives the adrenal gland a nudge. And epinephrine goes into our bloodstream and all of a sudden your blood starts working, your cells are constricting and dilating and your lungs are moving and your heart's moving and all of that. That's kind of the baseline for how those things happen. And the last situation, the last aspect of our brain is the hippocampus and that's a brain region that is memory storage and that is the fear response. And there's two things that go into the hippocampus on the one end. It's going to teach us to be afraid, right? If you touch a, f- a fire and it's hot, then you're going to know it's hot. Your hippocampus is going to remember that. And the next time you're going to touch a fire, you're going to be a little freaked out. Or if there's a seven-year-old running in front of the fire, you might grab him and tell him to stop. When we're kids, this is why we have so much less of a fear response. We're doing stupider things and not caring as much because you don't have the same fear because you haven't experienced it yet. Your memories aren't there yet. But the second you know that your friend died in a car accident, you're going to become afraid of not wearing that seatbelt. And that's how the hippocampus works. On a secondary level, it teaches us not to be afraid. It's the reason you can see animals at the zoo that would normally freak you out and not be afraid. Because your brain knows that they're animals in the zoo. And the hippocampus is the reason your brain remembers, okay, it's a lion, but it's in that cage. It's not going to come kill me. Lastly, I want to say here, why do we freeze up when we're scared? Fight or flight makes sense, but why are we freezing? And that's kind of scary, right? Any animal you'd think if you're standing there, you're going to die for that predator. But when you're fr- when you're, they're frightened, most animals do freeze. I'm thinking of the idea of, I think it's called Thrawn. 
That's from Watership Down, where the rabbits freeze up, or deer freezes up, especially small mammals. For sometimes, this is the best plan. If you stay still, if you stay camouflaged, it could save your life. There was a study in 2014 that identified the neurological root of freezing, and it's generated by cross-talking between your gray brain and your cerebellum in your brain. Sensory information such as threats, pain fibers, whatever, are sent to the cerebellum. The gray area of your brain, called the PAG, um, receives various sensory information about threats, pain, etc. Your cerebellum is sent sensory information like movement coordinating abilities. And the researchers found that a bundle of fibers connecting a part of your cerebellum, called the piramis, directly connected into the gray area of your brain, the PAG. And those messages cause you to freeze with fright for a moment so your brain can kind of work out, should I run, should I stay? And in that moment, you're not fidgety, kind of like choosing both. You're still, if you're in hiding, you're going to stay in hiding. And then once the threat is better identified by your body, you know whether to run or not run. But sometimes it's the problem. You know, sometimes that's what gets you killed. Sometimes freezing up gets you killed. And they're working with how to figure out different ways to help people with anxiety disorders treat that fear paralysis or people with phobias to treat the fear paralysis to minimize the unnecessary freezes. And that's huge. Whew. So we've talked today about basis of horror. We've talked about horror as a genre. What makes good horror? What makes bad horror? We've talked about monsters. Why we're scared. And I'm going to leave you for tonight with just a couple stories to send you on your way. I might move these around to different areas of the podcast. I might re-record this. This one's called, They Got the Definition Wrong. It has been said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I understand the sentiment behind the saying, but it's wrong. I entered the building on a bet. I was strapped for cash and didn't buy into the old legends of the hotel to begin with. So 50 bucks was more than enough to get me to do it. It was simple. Just reach the top floor, 45, shine my flashlight from a window, and come down. Hotel was old and broken, including the elevator, so that meant hiking up the stairs. So up the stairs I went. As I reached each platform, I noted the old brass plaque displaying numbers 15, 16, 17, 18. I felt a little tired as I crept higher. But so far, no ghosts, no cannibals, no demons. Piece of cake. I can't tell you how happy I was as I ended that last stretch of numbers. I joyfully counted them aloud at each platform. 40, 41, 42, 43, 44. I stopped and looked back down the stairs. I must have miscounted, so I continued up 44. One more flight, 44. Down 10 flights, 44. 15 flights, still 44. 44, 44. And so it's been for as long as I can remember. So really, insanity isn't doing something repeatedly and expecting different results. It's knowing the results will never, ever change. And still doing it anyways, knowing that each door leads to the same staircase, to the same number, realizing 44, 44, 44. Realizing you're no longer falling asleep. 44. It's not knowing whether you've been running for days or weeks or years. It's not about knowing that you're doing the same thing over. It's not even knowing. It's not even about expecting different results. Insanity is when the sobbing slowly turns into laughter. Insanity, that's an interesting concept. 
It's the fear of losing your fear, of losing yourself. We talked about it in the jaunt, and it's the same concept here. I like the numbers, the repetition. I like that there was a bit of a story in it, right? Going up this flight of stairs and going back down. But it's that concept of repetition, going up the stairs, down the stairs. But the fear about insanity is not about the fact that you're doing the same thing. It's about the fact that you stop caring about the result. The fact that the thing that used to scare you isn't scary anymore. That's, that's true horror to me. And that is what insanity is. It's when a horrifying monster becomes not horrifying. When a horrifying concept feels normal. That is one of the scariest concepts to me ever. It happens all the time in our culture. Right? Things that would be so fucked up 200 years ago. That we're like, yeah, it's par for the course. Or vice versa. And I think that's why the story is a good one. That's why I picked this story. This last little story. If God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? It's a common question, but it's misplaced. All things must have balance, light, dark, good, evil, sound, silence. Without one, there can't be another. So if that's true, then God does nothing to fight evil? Might be your follow-up question. <laughs> but of course, he fights evil. Relentlessly. I am D'Artagnan. One of his most holy and righteous angels, I roam the earth, disposing of evil wherever I find it. I kill the monsters you don't ever want to know about. I crush them completely, so you can sleep at night. You humans have no idea how many of you live because of the work I do. What about Stalin, Hitler, Ted Bundy, Jack the Ripper? Well, those are the small ones I had to let live for balance. The ones I destroy are too horrible and vile to survive. That's what's funny. What's funny is while I would wager you've never heard the name D'Artagnan in any religious text, I bet, I, I bet you've heard of me. Americans, for example, have their very own name for me. It's in textbooks and everything. Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. This last one's interesting. Just because of four words, it's not very scary as a concept. There's an angel that kills the worst monsters. The fear comes into play when you think about those four words. A, the fact that this thing that kills kids every year randomly is considered horrible in our culture. We hate it, right? It's horrible, these poor kids. But who knows, right? It's what you hear all the time. Like the abortion conversation is like, you know, never know who's going to be the next Einstein, but you never know who's going to be the next Hitler. I guess that's this concept. And it's this thing that we all mourn over and pray to God for, but maybe God's answering our prayers. And that's kind of horrifying in itself. Now, it's 70 minutes here, folks. I'm probably cutting this down and rearranging this, but it is a longer episode. This will be a longer episode than my other one, so I won't keep you too long. It is Halloween. If you're listening to this, this means it's past midnight on the 31st. So you are watching, you are listening to the Nightcap Podcast with me here, John Sherburn, on Halloween 2020. It's a weird year. We've had a weird year, folks. It's been sketchy, it's been scary, and I get it. We're all having a tough year, we're all being indoors, quarantined, not ourselves, and so I'm happy we get to sit here, think about horror, think about spookiness, have a fun night, give out candy, go get candy, be with your friends, be with your family, be by yourself, watch something scary, have something to drink, have a nice night, and enjoy yourself. Thank you for listening to the Nightcap Podcast. You can find my show notes on my website, jonathansherburn.com. You can find me on Instagram at jonathansherburn. 
Um, please reach out, talk to me. If you know me in real life, send me a text, send me a Snapchat message. If you don't, send me an Instagram, send me something. That just tell me how you feel, right? Tell me how you feel about the show, how you feel about the episode. If you have questions, comments, if you're if you're mad at something I said or you disagree with me, and you want to talk about it. I love that stuff. So so always let me know. Um, keep me up there. I like hearing from you guys. Um, so don't don't hesitate. I'd love to enjoy yourselves. Enjoy your night, and I will see you on the next episode on election night. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you.